You're listening to the Young Adult Sermon Podcast from First Christian Church. Our hope is that these words bless you, challenge you, and lead you closer to Jesus. Thanks for tuning in, and enjoy. Hi, you guys. What's up? You're, you are not kidding. This is a very awkward chair layout, huh? You don't really sense it when you're out here. When you're up here, it's like, man, sorry, you guys. Found the misfit toys on this side of the room. If you get that reference, you're old. Really? Anyone get it? Yeah. Remember those old claymation Christmas movies? Those things were those things were bomb. I grew up on those. Hey, uh, if you don't know me, my name's Josh. My name doesn't change if you do know me, but I want to just tell you a little bit about me because there are some people that I don't. I've seen your face and you've seen mine, but um, if I'm gonna. Be bringing the words tonight. I just want you to know a little bit of my heart. So I'm the student ministry pastor, and so I get the privilege of being a part of junior high, high school, young adults, and uh, doing a bunch of other crazy stuff around here. And um, I love getting to be with you guys because I feel like it's a unique stage of life, um, mainly because for me, being a young adult was the pivotal moment, right? Some people, Jesus grabs them in junior high, others in high school, some Way later, we baptized a 72-year-old woman yesterday who had like just given her life to Jesus, and so Jesus can grab your life at any point. But for me, college and being—I was, was like 19 or 20—that was like the pivotal time of my life where God really grabbed my heart and redirected me onto a new path. And so I got a special spot in my heart of all the peoples for you peoples, even though you don't know how to sit up chairs. Jesus loves you anyway, and I'm still glad to be with you. Um, so we are going through a series called Who is King? And we know the answer to that. We've been talking about that for probably three months or so. Um, and we, the, the cool thing though that I'm excited about is we're going to, the story's going to shift as we move from 1 Samuel to 2nd. It's actually just one thing, one, one work, but, um, it's written as two because 1 Samuel is a lot about King Saul and Saul being the primary guy in the story with David kind of being in the backdrop. And then 2 Samuel moves after the death of Saul, which Tim did a great job of bringing last week. 2 Samuel moves into the story of David and him becoming king and taking over the throne. And so we're going to pick up the story there in 2 Samuel chapter 1. So if you have a Bible or Bible app, open it up. If you need a Bible, we have free ones on the table back there. Feel free to grab them and as many as you want for people that you want to give them to. Uh, We also have, just so you guys know, uh, at discounted prices, we have available study Bibles and journal Bibles and travel. They're kind of up there over the snack bar over there that we don't use right now because of COVID. But you guys can buy those here. They're cheaper than you find them anywhere else. And uh, if you really want to, um, and if you're looking to study the Word and you don't have a study Bible, by all means, please come talk to me tonight and let's get you a study Bible. Because uh, it's, it, the top half of each page is like all Bible, and the bottom half is all explanation and application. And that's why it's so thick. But man, God changed my life in college through a study Bible. And so I really am passionate about those. Not trying to sell you on them. We actually lose money when you buy one, but I'd rather lose money for the gospel than almost anything else in this world. So, um, all right, 2 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to jump in there. 
And um, if you are, you got the ability to change your translation, I'm going to use New Living Translation, but you can follow along with whatever you want, unless you're one of those King James Version people, and then you're weird and you just get out. So, uh, where you sit on this side of the room with, uh, with these people? Where my, you got King James people here? Yeah. Oh. You can, you can sit over here on this side yeah. if you want. <laughs> what if we all sat according to Bible translation? A King James people? Right? I don't get it. But it is a very it is a very good translation of what's going on. You actually moved. That's amazing. That's amazing. Alright, let's jump in. So, chapter chapter one, verse one. It says this after the death of Saul. If you want context on that, talk to Tim or listen to last week's sermon on the podcast. And they'll tell you everything you need to know about the death of Saul. Uh, David returned from his victory over the Amalekites, sorry, and spent two days in Ziklag. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's army camp. He had torn his clothes and put dirt on his head to show that he was in mourning. He fell to the ground before David in deep respect. Where have you come from, David asked. I escaped from the Israelite camp, the man replied. What happened, David demanded. Tell me how the battle went. The man replied, our entire army fled from the battle, and many of the men are dead, and Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Now, if you don't know the story of David, Jonathan was his best friend. And Saul was the guy, who Jonathan's father, who was trying to kill David all these years. David hid in caves and fled to the hillside multiple times. He had numerous opportunities to kill Saul, and at each point he refused to do so. And spared Saul's life, even though Saul was coming at him. So David had a deep respect for Saul and a deep, loving friendship with Jonathan. He was his best friend. So when this guy says that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead, this isn't just like, you know, um, this isn't just like front page news for David. This is like the news of the year. This is the news of the decade for David. Um, His best friend has died in battle. How do you all know Saul and Jonathan are dead, David demanded of the young man. The man answered, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear, with the enemy chariots and charioteers closing in on him. And when he turned and saw me, he cried out to me to come to him. How can I help? I asked him. He responded, Who are you? I am an Amalekite, I told him. Then Saul begged me, Come over here and put me out of my misery, for I am in terrible pain and want to die. So I killed him. The Amalekite told David, for I knew he couldn't live. Then I took his crown and his armband, and I have brought them to you here, my lord. So, I don't know if you were trying to picture that in your mind as I was saying it, but an actual scene unfolded where the armies were closing in around Saul, and Saul wanted to fall on his spear, but he couldn't do it, so he asked the Amalekite to come help him. And so the Amalekite, at the request of the king, kills the king, and then brings the crown and armband of King Saul to David. The problem is the whole story is a lie. As Tim talked about last week, he'll probably remember that the the way Saul actually died was via suicide. Uh, Saul killed himself. And when his cupbearer, his number two guy, realized that Saul was dead, his cupbearer killed himself as well. And so you can go back and read that in the last chapter of 1 Samuel if you don't believe me. So what happens now is that this Amalekite shows up and tells David a bold-faced lie. Saul died of suicide, but here's the deal. David didn't know that. 
David was miles from the battle. David wasn't involved in this battle. David wasn't the king at the time. Saul was the king waging war. And so David uh, could believe anything that anyone told him at this point. So this person knows that David is removed from the battle, doesn't know anything that David would probably love to hear, that Saul is dead because David didn't want to kill Saul. So this guy's thinking, well, if David finds out that someone else killed Saul and that Saul died at his own hand, of his own will, of his own accord, then David is probably going to be stoked about that because now is David's chance to be the rightful king. We've been talking for weeks about David yielded and yielded and yielded and yielded and yielded as Saul was king. And now here's David's chance to become king. And so this guy shows up and makes up a story where he's the hero for killing King Saul because he believed that he was going to be rewarded by David, who is now the king, for his actions. So he's like, oh, your majesty, I did you a favor. I killed the guy that was after you, right? So David would, in, in essence, inherit the throne completely guilt-free. David didn't want to kill the Lord's anointed king, King Saul. But listen, if Saul wanted to die, and I just made it happen, then, like, props to me. <laughs> Sweet. It's a great day. And we'll get to David's response in just a little bit. But first, I want to unpack this because... The Bible is a timeless book, so the wisdom is always timely for us, and so I want to unpack what's going on here. Uh, the core issue going on in this moment is that this man gave up his integrity, he lied, in order to please David. This man comes, Amalekite comes, he gives up his integrity to please David. He wanted to please David, he wanted David to think highly of him, he knew David was going to be the king, and so listen, if I can be the guy that delivers the news that I killed him, then maybe I get some rewards, maybe I get some perks, I could be celebrated, I could maybe be part of the king's court, or whatever. So he creates this story that isn't true, or at least not entirely true, in order to get David to like him. And at this point, it's oh so familiar, because if this is not a struggle that has been in your life, then you likely know someone who cares more about their reputation with someone else than their own integrity. You've met people, you know people, maybe you are a person, let's just be real for a second with yourself. If you can't be real with anyone else, let's just be real with yourself for a moment. Many of us wrestle with a lot of things because we care more about our reputation with others than our integrity. What we say in 2021 is that he was a people pleaser. The reason we all get the idea of a people pleaser is because we know one, maybe we're related to one, maybe we're dating one, or maybe we are one. So thousands of years ago, people pleasers came in and told stories because they cared about what David, he thought David was going to think of him more than he cared about having integrity. Thousands of years later, we still do it. People want us to think highly of them, and so they'll sacrifice their integrity for the sake of their reputation, and they want people to think highly of them. It's still true today, and so, listen, if you're not sure if you're a people pleaser, I want to just throw a couple things out there to maybe, how, how do you tell if you're a people pleaser? Like, man, I'm not so sure. Here's a few questions. I want you to give yourself a point for every single one that you're like, yep, that's me. Now, don't hold fingers up, and really don't point fingers, um, unless it's at this group over here, um, the, the chair group. Uh, I'm just kidding. Don't hold fingers up. Don't point fingers. But I want yourself just to keep a mental tab, okay? 
You don't have to be real with anyone else right now, but just be real with yourself, okay? Just do me a favor. So, give yourself a point. If you struggle to say no to others without an excuse for why you're saying no. Like, oh, I can't make it. I have to organize myself. Like, why can't we just say no? Like, I'm sorry, I can't. I don't, I don't want to go. Right? Um, does anyone else, like, love when plans get canceled? Like, oh, man, I have these canceled plans that I don't, I have these plans that I don't want to go to. And they get canceled, you're like, yes, thank God. Right? Y'all, y'all been there at some point or other. So do you struggle to say no to others without an excuse for saying no? If so, give yourself a point. Are you concerned with how you appear to others? If so, give yourself a point. If you struggle to voice your opinions, your real opinions about things to others, give yourself a point. If you have poor interpersonal boundaries, give yourself a point. If you feel like you suffer at the expense of pleasing others, give yourself a point. If you have been criticized by someone and that has shattered you and the way you think for hours, days, maybe even weeks, give yourself a point. Give yourself two points if, if weeks applies to you. If you would say you're overly busy to try to keep up with everyone's demands on your time, give yourself a point. If you have a difficult time getting close to people or letting people get close to you, give yourself a point. If you have a difficult time being vulnerable, give yourself a point. Do you work a lot? Do you measure your success by what others say about you and what you do? If so, give yourself a point. Now, this isn't a perfect test. This isn't like some American Psychiatric Association thing where now I'm going to like psychoanalyze all of you. No, I'm just trying to say the higher point value you have right now, the greater indication that the idea of a people pleaser might actually apply to you. I'm not going to ask you your score. Keep track of your own score. But I think at least some of us, I mean, I think at least all of us would have a, at least one or two or three or four, right? Now, for me, I had almost all of them. I had almost every single one. Is there anyone else out here who's brave enough to admit, like me, that you had almost every single one, minus maybe like, like let's, let's just count, let's count, right? Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 10, 11, are you okay? 12? Um, if you scored a 7 or above, just with like me, and, and you're willing to share. Oh, my people. Oh, I got a 6. Okay, so, okay borderline? <laughs> Any, anybody 6s in the room? 6s? Um, anyone else just not want to share what their number was? That's, you know, you're like, not enough to put my hand up, because that's embarrassing. Um, we'll get there. So here's the deal. People pleasing, it, it is very, very common. We see it all the time. You're probably familiar with it. It, it may be you, it may be a family member, but where does it come from? Where does it come from? At its root, this is from a psychiatric standpoint, at its root, we like to please people because we are afraid of failing, we want approval, and at its core, we are afraid of rejection. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to feel abandoned and alone. And so I would rather 
tell you what you want to hear, live up to someone else's standard, do things their way, then push back and risk being rejected and feeling those feelings of rejection. And I know these things because a lot of this applies to my own story. And some of us, if not in this room, then we know people are slave to people-pleasing because we've built these reputations for ourselves that now we don't know how to get out of. This group of people believes I'm one way. This group of people believes I'm the other way. And my friends from Revive think I'm this person, but my friends from the parties think I'm this person, but my mom thinks I'm this person. And we build these reputations because we, we put on different masks and put on different faces with different groups because we want to please different groups because we're afraid of getting rejected for who we truly are. But what happens is that no one actually knows the real you. No one knows the real you. And where it leads is isolation and loneliness. And the irony of it all is that in an effort and a struggle to avoid rejection, to avoid feeling abandoned, end of the day because no one knows you because no one truly knows you you feel rejected and it is a deadly cycle hamster wheel I want to say some hard truth at the end of the day even though it's hard and it's a deadly cycle and we don't know how to get out of it Pleasing people, while we think we want to take care of others, is completely self-serving. It has nothing to do with actually caring about the other person and everything to do with me trying to gain some sense of worth through other people's approval of me. And the root of this is a simple theological understanding that Jesus isn't enough. That Christ isn't enough. It reveals that people's, about, people's opinions about me matter more to me than God's opinion of me. Man, rejection hurts. But if we are living a life in constant fear of just trying to avoid rejection, so we just say the right things and do the right things with the right crowd so that we can please everyone, we're going to be on this perpetual treadmill of just trying to measure up and trying to reach to some standard that we don't even know what it is, but we're just trying to make sure we don't rock the boat so that we don't get rejected and feel alone. So this group knows me this way, and this group knows me this way, and this group knows me this way, and this group knows me this way, but no one actually knows who I am. solution of, of all this, of course, is the courage to be vulnerable. The courage to say, I don't know what the heck I'm doing. I'm afraid of rejection. I'm afraid of being alone. I'm afraid of being abandoned. I'm afraid of what my mom might think, or what my friends might think, or what my people at church might think. And just to have the courage to say, yeah, that, that's me to lean in and to say, even though I know I'm afraid of this, I can't keep living like this. Will you have the courage to be vulnerable enough to admit that we can't keep doing this? 
We go on in verse 11. Now, here's the response to this. So this people-pleasing person comes out and thinks, man, I'm going to get David good. I'm going to teach him. Man, like, I'm going to, I'm going to, sorry, not going to teach him. I'm going to have him, like, love me and approve of me and not reject me and, like, hug me and be so stoked about me. Verse 11, David and his men tore their clothes in sorrow when they had heard the news. If you don't know what that means, uh, back in that culture, people, if they were, like, super stressed or angry or sad, they'd tear their clothes. It was like a, a cultural sign, like, I'm not okay. Right? Just tearing the clothes off. Which, if it happened today, would be real weird. But back then, um, it's almost like a Hulk, like, I'm sad! Right? And, but, so what they did back then was they tore their clothes in sorrow. That's what happened. They mourned and they wept and they fasted all day for Saul and his son Jonathan and the Lord's army and for the nation of Israel because they had died by the sword that day. Then David said to the young man who had brought the news, Where are you from? And he replied, I'm a foreigner. An Amalekite who lives in your land. And this is a movie. This is the part where all of a sudden the plot thickens. Okay? Like it was all like, happy, yay, Saul's dead, look at this. Oh, look at David, look what I did. And now, stuff's about to get down. Verse 14. This guy is like, I'm a foreigner, I'm an Amalekite, I live in your land, I killed Saul, look what I did. David's response, why were you not afraid to kill the Lord's anointed one, David asked. Then David said to one of his men, kill him. What? So the man thrust his sword into the Amalekite and killed him. You have condemned yourself, David said, for you yourself confessed that, that you killed the, the Lord's anointed one. I couldn't even get to that sentence because what the crap just happened? <laughs> what? This guy kills the dude that's been after David. David didn't have to get his hands messy at all. In fact, Saul wanted to die. Even though the guy wasn't truthful in his story, if you go back to the chapter before, Saul committed suicide in indicating that he wanted to die on his own will. And, but now this guy tells David, hey, look, I killed him. David doesn't know the difference. David doesn't know he's lying. David believes that this guy killed Saul as a result of Saul's request. And David's like, you know what? The reward for that is I'm going to kill you. What the heck? What kind of sick movie is this? Like God's writing this Bible and he's like, you know what I'm going to do next? Watch this. Right? Like, this will really throw him. And it did because I was reading this and I didn't have to stop and be like, what? This is ridiculous. Like, what is even happening? So it, make any, does, it makes no sense. It makes no sense. But here's the deal. Second look, of course, the scriptures reveal more to us. I'm going to pack them as quickly and yet as thoroughly as I can. Because there's three things that are happening here. One, David was a man after God's own heart. David, because he was a man after God's own heart, loved his enemies. And he prayed for the people that persecuted him. Did you know that if you have someone that you would define as an enemy in your life, it's not just like, ha ha, good, good wisdom, maybe I'll do that. You know, like, in, like something that you should do. Like as a Christian, praying for your enemies and loving on your enemies isn't something that like we should do. Like, oh, you know, maybe I'll just love my enemy and just like... You know, maybe I'll go drop a cookie off at their house, or, and then maybe I'll egg them on the way out, right? No, like, no, 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 no. If you 
are a Christ follower and you have a person in your life that you would identify as an enemy, and as soon as I say that, you can all picture a face in your mind, right? What we are called to do is not just like send good vibes their way. No, we are called, and I would go so far to say under direct order from Jesus himself to love them and to pray from them. It's not like a, a fun suggestion. It's a commandment to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Which, like this text, makes no sense. But we see that David loved his enemies. He didn't want revenge on Saul. The second thing we see is that while David didn't want revenge, he did want justice for Saul's actions. There's a stark difference between revenge and justice. Revenge is me taking things into my own hands. And justice is leaving it in God's. Revenge is driven by emotion. I'm so mad at you, I'm going to punch you in the face, right? And no. Revenge is driven by emotion, but justice is impartial. It doesn't take sides. It's a fair punishment for, for the crime. Revenge is motivated in anger, and justice is motivated in bringing closure. I'll say that again, because some of us, I'll say, and maybe if we're watching online, some of us want to get back at someone because we're mad. We want to see justice because we're mad. You can't see justice if you're mad. Justice won't happen through anger. Justice is motivated in bringing closure to a situation, not another punch-for-punch punch deal back and forth. Revenge is unlawful, while justice is lawful. Revenge is evil, and justice is good. Okay, so here's the deal. Now, we can pretty much identify through all of David's actions leading up to this point that he didn't want revenge on Saul. Like, he had so many chances to kill him, he didn't want revenge on Saul. But, did he get revenge on this guy for killing Saul? Because we've been holding David, David up as like this model citizen, like, oh, the man for God's own heart. And he screwed up a lot of things. But here's the deal. He didn't want revenge on Saul, but here he is like just knocking off the guy who killed Saul. According to David's belief that he killed Saul. So is David not getting revenge on this guy? And I would say actually no, because if you read the text, it's been a day since David heard the news. David didn't just hear the news and, and then just went and was like, who, who did it? Did you do it? And, went, and then just like slay him right there. No, David, you'll, you'll see, it was the next day. David had 24 hours to unpack and to collect his thoughts and emotions and feelings and everything. And I just want to give you a word of advice. This is practical. If you're not a Christian, if you are a Christian, it's helpful either way. If you are ever overcome by emotion, positive or negative or angry or sad, do yourself a favor and do everyone else in the situation a favor and wait 24 hours before you respond. Before you send that email, before you send that text, before you send that Facebook message or that Instagram direct message, whatever it is, before you send that thing, if, that, if something pissed you off and you are ticked, do yourself a favor, wait 24 hours. You'll be amazed to see how many conversations you don't regret anymore. You ever send an email and you're like, oh no, I wish I didn't send that. You wake up, you wake up the next day, you're sending like a, a really long text. You know the long text when like you open it and it's like, oh gosh, you're scrolling for like days. 
And, uh, and then you respond with an equally long message, and then the next day you go back and read, and you're like, what the heck? Oh, now I, gotta, I just made this 10 times worse. Right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Do yourself a favor, wait 24 hours. Tell the person, I'm sorry that this happened. Can we just wait 24 hours until my emotions cool off? And I promise you, when you respond instead of react, you'll have a much better approach to the situation. So David's responding to the situation. He's not reacting. I would bet he is calm and cool and collected. And here's the deal. At the end of the day, even if he wasn't, it wouldn't be unjust because years earlier, Israel was told to wipe out the Amalekites. And Saul wouldn't do it because he was afraid. Saul was afraid to go after these people because they were so gnarly. They were so brutal. And Saul was like, I'll go against them and lose because Saul didn't have the faith to actually go after them. And so then we could ask, well, was God's order to commit genocide unjust? How many people have ever struggled with the idea that the New Testament Jesus is warm and fluffy and fuzzy and friendly and great and amazing? And then you see the Old Testament God where he just offs entire populations. You're like, how can that be the same God? God is not a God of genocide. In that day, if you were to be in that culture, you would know the name Amalekite as being synonymous with slaughtering entire populations of innocent people. Mass systems of rape and trafficking and execution and torture. They had genocidal intentions against the Jewish people, much like Hitler did. So the Amalekites in that day were known in the same way that Nazis are known today. We would all look at the Nazi people, and while we might not wish genocide on them, their ideology and what they stand for and mass murdering, systematically murdering millions of people, we're all like, that's not cool. God had ordered Saul to take out the Amalekites because in that day they were known as the Nazis. And God's justice was coming on the Amalekites through Israel. It wasn't a genocide. It was to rid the world of a culture that Satan had completely invaded and overtaken and was openly oppressing other cultures with. God of the Old Testament is not a genocidal God. So all throughout this story, there's justice happening. But the most important part that I want to land with right here is that even though David doesn't know the true story, he kills the guy based on his story, yeah? The guy's story was that Saul asked to be killed. And this guy, the Amalekite, was just following a request from the king. The story was that it was the king's will. Saul asked me to kill him. It was the king's will that he would die at the hands of the Amalekite. So why would David, this is where we get hung up, why would David destroy someone who he understood was just doing the request of the king? And the reason is this. Even if the Amalekite had killed the king at the king's own will, if you kill the king, it's still treason. And the punishment for treason is death. The Amalekites' people-pleasing story made David believe that the blood of the king was on the Amalekites' hands. So, 
even though it was the will of the king, that man was still guilty of the blood of the king. And when the king's blood is on your hands, the just punishment is death. I don't think I have to draw the analogy that plainly for us to understand that Jesus' blood is on our hands. Jesus, though willing of his own free will, went to the cross and was murdered. It's still treason. And his blood is on the Amalekites' hands. His blood is on my hands. It's on yours. It's on all of our hands. And justice put the king's blood on our hands is death. Justice requires it. But the crazy part of the story is that God achieves justice for all of the blood that's on our hands through the very instrument used to kill his son. It's the way God does it. The moment that we sinned and entered the world, the only way to get it right again was to someone to pay the price. Jesus pays the price on the cross. All of our sin goes on the cross with him. And because our sin put Jesus on the cross, my sin put Jesus on the cross, your sin put Jesus on the cross, his blood is on our hands. But yet it's the cross that brings justice. Jesus didn't have to pay for his own sin. He didn't have to die for his own sin. So he had all the right and the ability to die for someone else's sin. And because he infinite, he's the infinite God, he can die for an infinite amount of sins. And when he goes on the cross, the very instrument used to bring justice to this world is the one that they put Jesus on. Because Jesus was rejected, because Jesus was abandoned, because Jesus was completely vulnerable. Think about the way to die where you are nailed to the cross naked. And in every depiction of Jesus in the modern day, he's got a little loincloth on, right? Like, that's probably not how it went. Um, you're, you're, you're beaten to a pulp beyond recognition. You've got nails through your hands and your feet, and you're left there to die naked while everyone else just watched you and hurled insults at you and humiliated you and insulted you and told you, you know, like, hey, look, this is, this is the king of the Jews. This is the king. Oh, okay, real cool. Good job, king. You're doing great up there. And at any moment, Jesus, because of who he was, had come off the cross and just smited all those fools. But because it was his will to be there, he pays the price we could not pay. He dies a death that we deserve. And in return, the doorway is open for us because he was rejected to not be rejected. Because he was abandoned to not be abandoned. 
because he felt the full wrath of God that we don't have to feel the full wrath of God. That the sin in our life is paid for and it's covered. So that all those things we're embarrassed of and shame, ashamed of and afraid of people knowing about us, right? Like, listen, at the end of the day, who cares what other people think about you? Because the God of the universe is the one who has the ultimate authority to say whatever he wants about you. Because if Jesus says something about you, what court could you be tried in that could say different? What word that someone could say could tell you differently? What idea could someone have about you that would, that would alter... That, um, that idea that Jesus has about you. The problem is that we don't see Jesus' sacrifice as enough for us because we think that people's words are going to satisfy us more than what Jesus did on the cross. At the end of the day, that will leave us empty. And so the solution for people-pleasing is to look at the blood of the king that is on our hands and to know that because he died the death that we should have deserved, even though we deserved it, because he did it, because he was rejected, because he was abandoned. It doesn't matter what people hear say or think because Jesus says, my death makes you righteous. My death makes you whole. My death redeems you. My death forgives you. My, even though you're in sexual sin, my death brings you up out of that. Even though you are caught in gossip, my death brings you up out of that. Even though your family's a wreck, my death brings you into a new family. Even though your dad left, I've got a heavenly father for you. Even though you've been the victim of abuse and abandonment, I promise you in my kingdom, there will be none of that. Jesus writes every wrong in our world. And the question at the end of the day is, do you trust it? So what I want to do now is give us a chance to be vulnerable before the Lord. To not worry about what other people are thinking. I know the temptation when we're like worshiping together, you don't want people to hear your voice, you don't want people to like see you being like this weird Christian person, right? Like you don't want people to hear you or see you or kind of like you don't want to be that weird guy that's off in the corner praying because then everyone sees like, oh that guy's not okay. You're like, man, I, I know I need to talk to someone. I know I need to pray with someone, but if I go ask that right now, if I go approach someone about that, then everyone else who is normal is going to look at me and think I'm weird. If I raise my hands in worship because I'm showing surrender of everything in my life to the king himself, I'm not going to do that because everything, then I'm going to be that hyper-spiritual guy. And what do we start doing? We start people-pleasing, even at church. We care more about our reputation So here's what I'm going to give us five minutes or so. I don't know who's doing what for worship or whatever. This is your time to do business with God, to come before him. And then the international sign of surrender, to spend some time getting vulnerable with him. God, where am I not following you faithfully. God, where am I caring more about what people think than who you are? God, where am I putting people's opinions first? God, where am I not putting you first? God, where am I rejecting the death of your son on the cross because of the way I treat people and the way I hold on to bitterness and the way I hold on to revenge? Spend some time just getting vulnerable before the Lord and letting him show you and 
teach you and guide you, not for the sake of being shameful and being like, oh, woe is me, Josh brings bummer sermons, but for the idea that when we get real before God, he can bring us to a wholeness that we never knew on our own. So we pray for that. Father, I thank you for this time. Being vulnerable is scary. Some of us are realizing the weight of what it means to please people and are living under the crushing expectations of what each group of friends has of us and realizing that all at the same time, we're alone. God, I pray right now that you would meet each person right where they're at and speak narratives into their life of who you are and the kind of work you've done on the cross to forgive us and them of their sin. God, forgive us in a place where we have put people's opinions before yours. Forgive us of where we have taken the words you've said about us and cared more about what our drunk friend thinks or our alcoholic dad or our abusive boyfriend. God, the enemy will take these lies and want them to sink deep into our souls. I pray right now, in the name of Jesus, that you uproot these lies. And in its place, plant seeds of goodness and of wholeness. That you would speak to, my, to us an identity of who we truly are in you. God, give us the courage in these moments to be vulnerable before you. To seek out prayer. To seek out a shoulder to, to cry on. To seek out you in worship. To get real before you, not only in our minds, in our prayers, but maybe in our body posture as well, submitting to you, knowing that the weight of this world is just crushing us, and we want something better. God, help us to be vulnerable before you, because you love us like no one can.